You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Campus Beat. My name is Dinah Jansen, and I'm in the virtual studio today with Professor Scott Lamaru and Professor Melissa Lafreniere from the Department of Geography and Planning here at Queen's University. Welcome, both of you, to CFRC today. Thank you. Thanks, Dinah. Great to be here. Uh, We have some really fun stuff to talk about with you today, Uh, namely a study newly published in the journal Nature Communications entitled Emerging Dominance of Summer Rainfall Driving High Arctic Terrestrial Aquatic Connectivity. I'm looking forward to talking to both of you about this particular article and the many years of research that went into it. But before we dive in, can you situate yourself in the research that you're doing at Queen's University in the Department of Geography and Planning? What is it that you do? Well, maybe I'll start first, Dinah. Um, I mean, I'm I'm really interested in landscapes. So I'm a geomorphologist by training, but I have a lot of interest in hydrology Uh and climatology and kind of work in the nexus of where those three things connect together. And so I've my field work and my research has always been in the Arctic from the days when I was a student and back into the 1980s, if I can go so far back. And uh, so th- what we publish in this work and we'll talk about is something that we've been, you know, has been a continuation of something we've been going, uh, working on since early 2000s. Amazing. And how about you, Melissa? Yeah, so I'm uh... I do research involving trying to understand how climate change is driving primarily changes in water and water quality. And so I started out my research career trying to understand how and why there were contaminants coming out of glacier watersheds um, in the Alpine. And that kind of took me on focus and then when I met Scott I came to to Queens and uh, he invited me up to the Arctic to look at these other environments that are still frozen but in a different state Uh, and so I started to look at questions involving how climate change is driving both the landscape change and then the hydrological change and the associated water quality changes there. Oh you're both doing such interesting research thank you so much. So Before we dive into the article itself, what drives your research passion? What got you involved in your research in the first place? For example, Scott, why the Arctic? What draws you there? (laughs) Why go to the desert? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it quite literally is a desert. You know, Um, it's where we work is is amongst the driest locations in Canada. Yeah. Uh, You wouldn't know it in the summer because it's wet and muddy and often drizzly, but it is dry. Um, you know, my, my, the re- the, like so many people, I, my path to work in the Arctic started uh, when I, uh, an influential time when I was a student. I was really fortunate to have a, a, a professor where, at the University of Alberta who I was working with, John England, who invited me to be a field assistant for one of his graduate students. Mm-hmm. And I spent three months uh, kicking around on, in, in far northern Ellesmere Island on the northern tip of Canada, 
uh, and I, I was I was hooked. I mean, I was hooked on the landscape and the challenges of trying to understand what was going on. And really everything I've done ever since is some variant of, of, the, of that start. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's, I, I could never have predicted that and I could never have gone to university to say, I wanna do this, but I discovered it and fell into it and feel pretty fortunate to have been able to spend most of the last 30 years doing it. Amazing. And Melissa, water flows, glaciers, what drives your passion? Well, I think it was just always a, a curiosity and, and just a, a need to, for me, a personal need to understand water and what was in it. Um, you know, I grew up on the water. I was born and raised on, on the river in Mattawa, Ontario. And for me, it was, you know, the, the, the times where we were told, hey, you can't swim in the water for some reason. And I was always like, why, why is that? Why, you know? And so for me, that's really, I think I, I had no idea what I was, where I would end up when I started uh, university. It was all just uh, a, an adventure that sort of, I just sort of followed where the path took me. Uh, I, I just knew I, I wanted to pursue questions surrounding, you know, our water and water quality and, and how, how to best, you know, preserve these, these environments that we depend on. So um, yeah. And then, yeah, I just, I really stumbled my way into glaciers. I didn't know what glaciers were before I started, you know, obviously we're so in Ontario, we're far removed from glaciers. So uh, mm -hmm. I, not unlike Scott, you know, as an undergraduate, I just through professors at Western who did glaciology, they put me in touch with the researcher at the University of Alberta. Um, and they were looking at this question of, you know, why and how there were contaminants in these glacially fed alpine lakes. And so, yeah, so I went out there trying to understand how the hydrology of glaciers had to do with this question. So, yeah. And, and here you are now. And here I am now <laughs> looking at water, you know, permafrost watersheds and yeah. What a fun journey. Okay. And we have so much more to talk about in terms of the journey you have both taken over the many years that you've been working on this uh, research study as well. And let's talk about it. Let's pivot that way to the nature communications study that you've just published titled Emerging Dominance of Summer Rainfall Driving High Arctic Terrestrial Aquatic Connectivity. So folks, for the non-specialists out there, Scott, Melissa, in plain terms, what is it that you're studying about rainfall in the Arctic in the summer? Well, you know, it comes back to your comment, Dinah, about uh, it being such an arid place. And part of what makes it so arid is rainfall is really, heavy rainfall is really rare. And where it had, traditionally has been, historically. But the climate is changing that. And, and what's changing as a result of that is the entire system, of how water uh, comes out of the sky in the form of rain or snow and contributes to, you know, moves over the land through the soils and contributes to flow downstream in the rivers and, and how the quality of that water is changing because of those changes. And a, a colleague put it really interesting way. It's, it's essentially what we found is the entire, the textbook definition of how rivers flow in this environment has changed. And if we were to have been on your show 10 years ago, uh, probably in the studio, I would hope, uh, we would have been talking about snowmelt 
and we would have been kind of, and you, you might've asked the question, well, but, but what about rain? And we would have said, well, you know, that's not very frequent. It's not very important. And I think what this study does is it really shows with a really remarkable data set that rainfall matters and it's becoming more common, not just at the site where we did all of our work, but in a number of other uh, rivers across the Arctic in Canada and elsewhere. And this has incredible implications for water quality, what's being moved in the river. So whether that's sediment, whether it's nutrients, whether it's carbon, uh, all of those things are part of the water quality. And, and this changes everything. It's a game changer, I guess. Melissa, would you like to jump in here? Well, I, I think Scott said it really well. I think there, and I guess maybe the other aspect that's, that's um, brought out in this work that's related to this, this change uh, in climate is that on, at the same time that we're having this really fundamental shift from the dominance of snowmelt driving the flows and the water quality in river towards mm -hmm. rainfall, we're also having these other changes on the land with um, the changes in the thawing of the permafrost and how that's mm -hmm. changing the nature of, of the, the materials that are at the surface of, you know, of, of these watersheds. So it's, it's changing, you know, where areas where, you know, maybe there was vegetation, if there's a active layer, like a, a a landslide that removes some of that vegetation that changes what's what's there and available for water to come into contact with and carry away downstream and so those that mm -hmm. the combined hydrological change with the landscape change is, is really leading to some some really important um changes in, in what what's coming out in these rivers and and when so thank you both very much. Now, can we dive into a little bit on the actual conduct of the study, which I understand took over 10 years to do and involved uh, not just yourselves, but a very large team of folks, including uh, many students over many years as well, contributing to this and, and visiting the Arctic, collecting samples, all of these things. So you went to the Arctic. How often were you going up there? And what does the day-to-day -day look like in terms of the research and experimentation for maybe for some of us who might think about doing careers in geography ourselves, the young students out there, or maybe some of the adventurous folks who want to kind of imagine what it's like to be able to do research in the Arctic. What does it look like? Well, you know, I, I mean, there's two parts to, the, to answer that, Dinah. I mean, one is the, 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 the science of it, and I could talk to that, but there's also the, the, the actual physical living, the experience. And I mean, maybe that's the thing that I'll start with is, uh -huh. you know, the, the place we did this, uh, it's called Cape Bounty Arctic Watershed Observatory. It's a long name for a place that we established on Melville Island, which is uh, a remote uninhabited island uh, in Nunavut. And its uh, nearest community is 400 kilometers away at a place called Resolute. And Resolute has about 200 people mm -hmm. in residence. So just even getting to Resolute in itself is a bit of an adventure. You can do that on a commercial airplane, but it, as with all things in the Arctic, it, it can be adventurous. Weather and other delays can be really challenging. And cargo can often be really unreliable or delayed. And 
But once we're in Resolute, we would fly on a smaller charter aircraft, everything we use out to this field site, which is again, about 400 kilometers. And we, we do leave things there, but and we have a camp there that we leave. But every year it's sort of this logistical production of moving several thousand kilograms of people, fuel, food, scientific equipment uh, out there. And then, you know, Melissa and I often talk about how as soon as you get there, it's about everything is about getting it all back, including now the samples, which often, you know, number hundreds of liters of water that were sampled and, and, and other materials. So it's, so there's, that's one aspect of it. And then once you're there, you're, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but you're literally on a deserted Island, hundreds of kilometers from the nearest community. And if the wind is calm and especially in late winter, when there's no moving flowing water, there can literally be absolute silence, probably the only time in my life I've ever had it. And, uh, but it's, it's rarely like that. It's usually windy. It's usually, uh, the weather is, varies from any kind of weather you can imagine. And the ferocity of the weather is, is just remarkable. And people are, are, we're living in this environment. So you, and, and I think that's a big part of the science is that you see it and experience it firsthand as you do your work. And you can't help but under, come to understand the environment better because of that living experience. And you know, some of us will go out for two to three weeks. Others, many of the students will go out for periods as long as 10 to 12 weeks. And it's and, and for, for somebody who's never done anything like that, living in a camp with minimal outside communication, uh, communal cooking, um, and sharing work and living and sleeping in a tent on your own is, is a really amazing experience. Melissa, how about you in terms of the, the living, the getting there, the logistics, the doing? Let's hear from you. Yeah, oh wow, Scott really summed it up well. It's sometimes you you find yourself, you know, in the midst of doing something that seems, you know, just kind of mundane, you know, and and you you realize, wow, I'm in this incredible place trying to understand why this, you know, scientific process is going on the way it's going on and uh, I think, yeah, I think some of the the big challenges are are really, yeah, just coming to grips with being out there and contending with whatever the elements and and oftentimes just you know equipment changes and malfunctions throw at you. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing because you you realize just you're. you're you absolutely have to figure it out on your own with whatever you have at hand. It's, um, and, and just, you know, make the best you can of, of different moments. So it's, uh, it, it's challenging, but it, it, every day is its own adventure, I think, because you, you just, you wake up and you have a plan and, and then, you know, the plan becomes whatever, whatever curveballs get thrown at you and how you, how you work your way around them quite often. So, yeah. Amazing. So let's hear now a, a little more about the science, as Scott, was, as Scott said, we can also talk about too. So what does it look like to do the experimentation? Uh, you were collecting water samples. You had hundreds of liters to take back each time. Melissa, let's start with you. What does the science look like? Well, there's, so, there's a lot of levels to it. 
Um, I'd say like, you know, if we start off with one of the, the key elements we need to, to really address any of these questions is, is weather and climate, right? So there are, there are all these um, different stations that are kind of operating in the background. So we have a weather station that's set up and that we just maintain every year. And uh, we're, we get our, our weather data. We need to know how much rain is falling. We need to know what temperatures, you know, we're, we're, how temperature is changing. So, so we need all that background data. When it comes to the streams, you know, we have stations that are measuring water level and how that's changing and uh, how temperature and other properties of the water are, are changing. And we, we monitor these at a relatively high resolution you know we, we me measure the weather data every depending on on what situation we're, we're sometimes monitoring this at 10 minute intervals right uh -huh. so to keep a real to have a detailed look at how how change is happening and and then that's kind of the background layer right of trying to understand what's happening in the background and then and then we we have other um targeted sampling and experiments that, that we go out and try and um, make use of the, the changes in the, that we, and the differences we see on the land to, to tell us about how this particular landscape works or, or that particular landscape works and how water is during snowmelt versus during rainfall. So, you know, we, we'll, um, like when we started out at this site, Scott and I, we were monitoring, uh, you know, I came out and I said, oh, well, let's have a look at how the chemistry is varying in these couple of streams over, over the summer and from snowmelt into, into late summer. And then we started looking at the lake chemistry. And then at the same time, we're like, oh, well, look at, you know, there are these hill slopes that are really very different. And one's super vegetated and the other is not. So let's, you know, so we started to look at how, how things varied across these different landscapes. And um, so, yeah, so there's these kind of layers we build from sort of a larger sort of spatial scale to building it down into finer spatial scales and then also finer temporal scales. So um, yeah, so there's the day-to-day -day just walking out and tromping around the land trying to get a sense of how things are and going out and collecting samples here and there and coming back to the lab to then you know when I collect water samples that's not the end of it you have to collect the water then you have to filter it and preserve it uh, to put in a bottle and ship south for analyses that happen later um, yeah so there's a lot of those different aspects to it so many layers, so many layers, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for sharing. It's yeah. it's nice to really get a feel for what that looks like in practice. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Okay. And so with that, after many years of study, what does your study reveal? What did you find? Well, I think what was really particular and, and important about this study was that the, the students who led it, um, Casey Beal and Joanne Heslip, they were really able to break it down to quantifying how and when that change and shift from snowmelt dominated to rainfall dominated was altering the 
type of material that's being moved in these in these rivers. And what was really, I thought, really well done with this study was just that they were really able to hone into this very large data set and not only extract these, these broad patterns, like we, we intuitively were seeing that, okay, yes, rainfall is increasing and we're seeing these increasing uh, large flow events and bringing with it a lot of sediment. But what was great was that we had am amassed enough data to allow them to really extract the essence of that there are these threshold behaviors that it's not just, you know, a gradual increase in, in warming or a gradual increase in precipitation that's going to drive big changes, but that there's these threshold or step responses that when rainfall runoff passes a certain height or amount, then we see this, this switch in, in the type of materials that are transferred. And they were able to really hone in on that and determine that. And also they were able to, to show how with the, the landscapes uh, change, they were able to determine that even these very small changes in, in the landscape. So these small areas that were affected by uh, landslides um, were, despite it just being a small part of the watershed affected by these landslides, that that small footprint had a larger impact than some of the other changes that were happening across the whole watershed. And so they were able to really hone in and quantify just how important these A, small changes can be, and then B, that there's there's not a, a direct linear response. So it's not a progressive change, but there's these step changes that can occur. Uh, wow, <laughs> thank you very much. No, I, I, that was incredibly detailed, very easy to understand and significant uh, implications, even at the global scale, but also at the community scale too. And if we can just pivot ever so slightly, one of the things that I find quite interesting about geography is sometimes we're talking about geography in terms of the physical geography, but in every way, there's always human geography somehow attached to your research. And there are communities, you said that Resolute is 400 kilometers from your site, but how are Arctic communities potentially affected by some of these changes that you are uh, finding over the last 10 years? What are the implications? Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a really important motivation for the work as well, because a lot of these communities depend on simple water supplies. Um, in the case of Resolute and many other Nunavut and Northwest Territories communities, the water is just simply collected and distributed untreated to the community members. And historically, that's been adequate. It's been basically safe. Mm -hmm. and, and it's been consistent with the resources available to them. Uh, you know, there's, and permafrost makes it very difficult, for instance, to have underground pipes. So a lot of the water is trucked from this, where it's supplied to each building where there's a holding tank. Now, if, if, if the, that system works very well when the hydrology and, and the water quality is predictable, but when it starts to change, mm -hmm. it becomes vulnerable. And these are small communities they have limited resources, both in terms of money, of course, but in, but in terms of expertise locally to adapt to a sudden change in, 
in water and the, and the territory as well. And even the federal government have limited resources to respond to changes in water quality. So in the case of Resolute, an example would be shifting towards increased summer rainfall. Certainly anecdotally, we've seen a lot of increase in sediment that's being transported with that. And, and sediment is going to be minerals, mud, but it's also going to be things like Melissa was talking about, particulate organic carbon and a lot of other things you can't see. And that's getting into their water supply, which is in the case of Resoluta Lake uh, near to the town. And if the water quality of the lake changes, they don't have a, a simple plan B. And there's no, so, so there's a real risk here to these communities. And um, and, and that if these kinds of changes come suddenly, that adequate planning can't be made. And without a water supply, I mean, any community would be under severe uh, stress. And, and you know, I mean, there, the emergency kinds of orders there would be something like boiling the water, but things like sediment can't be easily boiled out. And so it's, mm -hmm. so the impact of these communities with limited resources is perhaps more profound than it would be in Kingston, where we have uh, a water treatment system. We have capacity to deal with things like particulates and, and other things in the water. We have a very large mm -hmm. staff and, and, and local expertise of people who know how to treat water and solve problems on the spot. And when you're in a small mm -hmm. remote community, you just don't have that, that, that capacity. So, so the, the communities are vulnerable. And, and uh, so that what we've seen in this study is an example of, of, the, of the potential changes that could be coming to water supplies that have traditionally been or historically have been considered pretty stable and reliable. Um, and there's other aspects to this, of course, you know, the, the supply of water could change with climate. Uh, there are aspects associated with contaminants uh, and, and, and a variety of other things that we don't deal with in this paper. But, uh, these are all sort of central to, you know, communities' concerns and, and anyone who has to manage the water for those communities. So now let's look at things more on the global implications, if you will, and where your research falls into the conversation about climate change. We touched on it a couple of times through our conversation. Let's hear more. I see... I see some implications immediately. Oh, things are starting to melt. The permafrost is melting, releasing this carbon that's also releasing gases, carbon monoxide, contributing even further to the climate change. Can, what does your research contribute to that conversation on uh, well, climate Well, I, I mean, I can, I, one thing I, I'll, I'll just say about that is, is, you know, there's kind of global concerns and then there's kind of regional and local concerns. And I guess... Uh, you know, in, in a remote area like the Canadian high Arctic, we, right. the, the amount of, of research wow. that's been done over the years, the available information to, to, to understand and predict what climate change is going to have in terms of its impact on water, on the land, on, on, on the, the, the plants and animals and the people is very limited. And so I think one of our major contributions is to that knowledge and helping hopefully people be, you know, be able to, to live, uh, you know, and survive health, you know, in a healthy way and for the, the environment to improve our understanding of how the changes are going to occur there. But you know, the larger scale question of global climate carbon permafrost, maybe I'll leave that for Melissa to, to uh, offer uh, her thoughts. Please do. Okay. Well, I, 
Yeah, and I think that's uh, it, the the value of what we're doing and, and what we contribute goes back to Scott's point that where we're doing this work, there's so little data. There's a lot of work happening uh, more across sort of the Arctic and subarctic regions, uh, circumpolar regions, um, but there's so much less activity in the high Arctic. And so it's just that area mm -hmm. of the map that we really don't know a whole lot about. And, and what we're finding is that there's a combination of, of processes that are really going to to determine just how the changes happening on the land are going to connect with the changes happening in the aquatic systems and then how that feeds back on the atmosphere and global climate. And um, yeah, so I, that's kind of where, where the, the importance of the work happens globally. And, and it's, we're in a small, I guess a relatively small region of the Arctic, but it's one of the colder regions, but it's also one of the regions that's experiencing the most intense um, and rapid warming relative to to the rest of the globe. So I think it's it's an understudied and pretty critical location, I'd say. Thank you very much. Folks, we have been chatting with Scott Lamoureux and Melissa Lafreniere all about their new study, Emerging Dominance of Summer Rainfall Driving High Arctic Terrestrial Aquatic Connectivity in the journal Nature Communications. Thank you both so much for sharing so much about the massive amount and many years and people hours of research that went into the study and the adventure that went along with it. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Dinah. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really been fantastic to be able to share this with you and all of these different aspects of the work beyond this particular study. It's been really great.